Thank you, Wesley and Josh Marie. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews in chapter 9. When I say the date, October, 5th, October 31st, 1517, what do you think about? Most Reformed people say, the Protestant Reformation, of course. Kids, you know we have our Reformation Day celebration every year where we have a bonfire out back and we throw the papal bulls in the fire and so forth, celebrating the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. That was the day that Martin Luther nailed a document called 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, where he was a priest. Now, if you don't know this, you would think, I've seen telephone poles with notices on them, and they've got all these nails and pieces of paper. Why would they do that on the church door? Well, this was back before there was any form of mass communication at all. So the only way people got information was through bulletin boards of various types. Well, if you want the church to get a message, you would nail that message to the door of the church, which is what Luther did. So that was a common practice in his day. Um, And Luther was hoping to spark a discussion, a debate about some significant concerns he had with the Roman Catholic Church. He never anticipated that it was going to spark the Protestant Reformation in the church in Europe. Now, history tells us that the Protestant Reformation was not planned by men. uh, The the goal of the Reformers was, was to reform the Roman Catholic Church, not to, in a sense, replace it with something new. Well, the book of Hebrews, and specifically the text we're in this evening, tells us of another Reformation, a time of reformation, one that was planned from all eternity by our sovereign God. And his intention was to replace the old order with something entirely new, a new arrangement, a new covenant. Verse 10, you see, refers to that time of reformation. Well, please follow as I read And I'm going to read Hebrews chapter uh, 9, beginning in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 15. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table of the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section called the most holy place, or we might See in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant that covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. That would be the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Above it were the cherubim of of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time 
of reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who, call, who are called may receive the promised in eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. As we consider this new covenant reformation, there are three uh, headings I've divided this up into. One is the earthly shadow of the holy places. That's in verses 1 to 5. Secondly, the earthly shadow of the gifts and sacrifices in verses 6 to 10. Uh, it's interesting that each is five verses that wasn't intentional. But an earthly shadow of the holy places, the earthly shadow of the gifts and sacrifices, and then finally, the reformation that brings true redemption. Now, in one sense, everything that we're covering in this passage has already been said in the book of Hebrews. But like a, a fine diamond, we want to hold it up in the light and, and, and look at how the light goes through each one of the facets and discover new aspects of beauty that we might not have recognized before. Considering more these various facets of the truths of the new covenant, the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might have a greater understanding, that it might grasp our hearts more, the glory of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to do that as we lead up to celebrating the Lord's table, the new covenant meal this evening. So, first of all, let's look in verses 1 to 5, this earthly shadow of the holy places. Now, chapter 8 ends with verse 13, which says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so, the focus as we enter into chapter 9 is the demonstration that the old covenant really is obsolete. It really is replaced with a new covenant, which is infinitely better. I want you to see that the writer is putting the emphasis on the physical elements here of old covenant worship. In verse 1, he speaks of these earthly places of holiness, a physical tent or tabernacle. This, that this, this earthly physical tabernacle that was appointed with physical or material items of furniture. And he describes that physical tent called the holy place in verse 2. We read, a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table of the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. So he speaks of this, the holy place. It's the, the tabernacle, as it were, the outer part of the uh, covered tent that Pastor Mark was showing us this morning. And it contained the lampstand, the table of the bread of presence or the consecrated bread on that table. And Pastor Mark described these structures for us in his study on the book of Exodus. And, and we've seen something of their use and their function in Old Covenant worship. The lampstand points to the Lord Jesus, who is the light of the world. These 12 loaves of bread 
one for each tribe of the children of Israel, the 12 tribes, uh, represent the communion coming and dining with our God. And the tent, this tabernacle is surrounded by fine linen and all the walls as well as the outer structure, the, the, the courtyard as well. And there's this ornate curtain described that we've read before this morning that goes across that entrance into the holy place that marks the entrance from the outer court into the tabernacle or the holy place. But in verse 3, we find the, 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 the description of the most holy place or what we might call the holy of holies. Behind the second curtain or the veil that we're familiar with was a second section called the most holy place having a golden uh, altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. Now, verse 7 tells us of, uh, of the high priest going in only once a year. There was a restriction basically on that veil. It says essentially do not enter except once a year on the Day of Atonement, if you're the high priest, dressed in all of the priestly garb that Pastor Mark described this morning with that symbol on the forehead that says, holy to the Lord. And then after making all of the necessary sacrifices for yourself first and then for the people. Otherwise, do not enter. And we find an inventory here of these items, these Uh, these pieces of furniture in the most holy place, the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, which is covered on all sides with gold and the mercy seat or the atonement covering with the cherubim on top, as it were, guarding that sacred Ark. And as you know, the Ark is this large ornate chest or box uh, and it contained three sacred items, three items of great significance to the children of Israel. The first was a golden urn with manna saved from their time in the wilderness. I trust that by the mercy of God, that manna didn't spoil over the centuries. Mark mentioned some 500 years the tabernacle was in use, that that manna was somehow preserved miraculously by God in that golden urn in the ark. But secondly was Aaron's Aaron's staff that budded. I'm not going to go into the whole story about why Aaron's staff budded, but that was a matter of great significance. And I would encourage you to go back and read that later, not now, in Numbers chapter 17. But the third item were the two tablets, the stone tablets of the old covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now each one of these three items had great significance to the old covenant community, but the emphasis in all of this is it's a physical tent made with hands with physical items crafted by men. And then we have this mercy seat with these, uh, this, this, this gold covering, again, crafted by human hands, and these glorious uh, angel figures on top of that atonement covering where the blood was sprinkled on the day of atonement. Now, there's something curious here about the mention of this altar of incense inside the most holy place of the Holy of Holies. Pastor Mark alluded to it this morning. In Hebrews, it says it is inside the veil, inside the most holy place. But if you go back to the, uh, to the uh, instructions in the Old Testament, if you looked at the picture that was there this morning, uh, we find that altar of incense placed on the outside of the veil. 
And there's a lot of discussion about that. Maybe the writer of Hebrews really didn't know where it was supposed to go. Well, that's short-sighted because he was an expert in Old Testament theology. I don't think he was confused. I think the best explanation, what makes the most sense, is that that altar of incense on the day of atonement was moved into the holy place inside the veil because the smoke from that incense needed to cover over the mercy seat lest the high priest himself be killed in the presence of God. Again, just the emphasis on the holiness, the unapproachability of God in the old covenant. Simon Kistemaker says the smoke of the, from the altar of incense had to conceal the atonement cover of the ark so the high priest wouldn't die. That's a sober thought. If you're the high priest and it's your turn and it's a day of atonement and you put on all, these, uh, all this garb and you go in wondering, will I come out alive? Of course, that's nothing compared to Jesus going to the cross knowing he's not coming out alive. But he would be raised three days later. Now, it's instructive for just a moment to appreciate the value of these temple items, the tabernacle and the items that were placed in it. The, the golden lampstand, Pastor Mark told us, was 75 pounds of pure gold. And the table of bread was made of acacia wood, but it was overlaid with pure gold. Where these 12 loaves of bread were placed every uh, every. Sabbath, the, the priest would replace those 12 loaves. And then the ark, this chest made of acacia wood, again overlaid with pure gold, this pure gold urn containing the manna. Now, according to the instructions that the Lord had given to Moses, for those items, and you add to it uh, what we heard this morning, the altar outside in the courtyard and the uh, bronze uh, the bronze um, uh, laver for washing, the value in today's dollars would be, I don't know, 75, 80, 100 million dollars. It represents, in a sense, the treasury of Egypt that had been plundered by the people of God when they left. Egypt basically said, we're so, uh, so overwhelmed with, with terror by what your God has done to us, we're going to pay you to leave and they just, as the children of Israel are leaving, they're throwing their gold and their silver and their treasures at them. They sure didn't mine those gold and silver treasures while they were out in the desert, the wilderness, did they? It's what they received from Egypt. Um, recently, my family went on vacation to Austria. And we went to Vienna, and we went and toured the, uh, the Schönbrunn Palace. It was the summer palace of the Habsburg dynasty. They have the three-season palace in the city of Vienna and then the summer palace on the outside, right? And we stood in long lines as people wandered through this incredibly ornate structure, room after room lined with gold leaf and every imaginable luxury and opulence. It was stunning, to think that people actually live that way. I can imagine some of the people walking through would, would fantasize, what would it be like to, to live in a, a place like this? It was a treasure trove of wealth. I want you to hold that thought. What would it be like to live in a place like that? 
So we've described these temple items, this vast wealth that was manifest in the temple for the worship of God. And in the ark, again, we said there's this staff of Aaron's that budded. It produced blossoms. It even produced almonds. There's a demonstration that God was with Aaron and his tribe and not with the other tribes during a time of insurrection, basically. And then the two stone tablets of the, of, of the, of the old covenant, the Ten Commandments. And in terms of the significance For the people of Israel, this is probably the greatest treasure of all that was found in this tabernacle. But again, these are all physical, earthly items made by human hands. They represented the vast riches that the children of Israel gathered when they left Egypt. And these regulations of the Old Covenant specified these very specific preparations. But as we're going to see in a moment, it doesn't matter however ornate, however valuable these items might have been, however, uh, however precious and however uh, uh, ostentatious even they might have all been, they were a mere shadow of the heavenly temple. That is the emphasis of this text. It's all made by hands. It's, it's, it's of this world. It's physical, and it is temporal, and is of lesser value. Hebrews 5, or Hebrews 8 chapter 5 calls that tabernacle a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So if that's what the earthly is like, imagine what the heavenly must be like. What's the earthly tabernacle? Let's look at the, the earthly shadow of the gifts and the sacrifices in verse 6 through 10. The Levitical priests are engaged daily in their ritual duties. Verse 6 tells us these preparations having thus been made, all these, uh, the, 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 the tent has been built with all these fine linens and, 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 and all these luxurious items, and now it's been uh, filled with the, uh, the, the items, the, the, the furniture for the sacrifices and for the bread and for the altar, the incense, the washings. These have all been set in place, and now the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties every day. They tended the lampstand, it says, from evening till morning in the Old Testament. Every, Lord, every Sabbath day, they would replace those 12 loaves of bread. Every morning and every evening, they would burn incense on the golden altar to the Lord. And these priestly duties, they repeated day after day, year after year. Remember, Pastor Mark told us this morning, as a priest passed through the courtyard, remember he had to offer a sacrifice at the altar out there, and he had to wash his hands and his feet, lest when he entered the outer part of the tabernacle, the, most, the holy place, he might die. Now, what does that emphasize for us? It emphasizes their own mortality, their own Inadequacy. Remember Hebrews 7.26, Pastor Mark read this morning, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Well, the very fact that they had to cleanse their hands and their feet before they went in lest they die tells us that these Levitical priests were not holy. They were not innocent. They were not unstained. They were not, uh, they, they were not separated from sinners. They were stained by their own sin, and they were participants in the sin of those whom they served. 
They were wholly inadequate to provide us the cleansing that we need. And, and Hebrews tells us the very fact they stood ministering day after day after day is a testimony to the insufficiency of those provisions in the Old Covenant. Well, that was the daily ministry. Secondly, in verse um, 7, we find this once-a-year observance of the Day of Atonement. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the intentional or unintentional sins of the people. We're not going to get into the whole theology of unintentional sins here. Uh, But recognize that it was only the high priest authorized to enter through that veil. And he only on the Day of Atonement, and after, only after all of the other provisions had been met. And when he came with a blood sacrifice, it was a blood of an animal, a bull, a sheep, a ram, a goat. And he had to present that sacrifice first for his own sins, and then, only then, the sins of the people. Look with me at Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. All the blood of bulls and goats in the world would never cleanse a single sin. Verse 9 here in chapter 9 tells us that they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Sam Storms describes three fundamental flaws in the Old Covenant. Not that the old covenant was defective for what God sent it for, but it was, it was flawed in the sense it was not faultless, we read in chapter 8. And it was not faultless for these reasons. Number one, the sacrifices of the old covenant can never secure our forgiveness, as we've read. Secondly, in the old covenant, the law of Moses tells us what we must do. And as we read in one of the texts this morning, as long as you do these things, you'll be blessed. But if you fail to do these things, you'll be cursed. And the problem with the law is it tells you what you must do and what you must not do, but it doesn't have the power to change your heart and to motivate you to do what God is calling you to do. And so, every member of the old covenant seeking to establish his own righteousness is doomed to fail. Now, again, I I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and we don't have time this, this evening to go into all this, but anyone saved in the Old Testament was saved anticipating the sacrifice of Messiah. They were saved by the blood of Jesus, not by the blood of bulls and goats, in an anticipatory way. It's something mysterious, and uh, again, we don't have time to, to, to delve into all that this evening. But I want you to see that the old covenant law was insufficient to motivate, to enable us, to empower us, to overcome the power of sin in our lives. And thirdly, the old covenant was temporary. It was designed by God with what he calls a built-in obsolescence. Because the people are incapable of fulfilling the Old Testament law, it's inevitable that the Old Covenant was going to be obsolete, that a new covenant would be necessary. And of course, it all points to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The rituals of the Old Covenant were insufficient for all of the reasons I just mentioned, but they teach us an important lesson. These earthly holy places, as spectacular as they might be, are not sufficient to redeem us. Verse 8 tells us that the way is not yet open. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section or the first tent is still 
standing. He's referring to the time before the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Where it says in, uh, in, in the ESV Bible, that first section was still standing. That's the same word that's translated tent or tabernacle two or three other places in this very chapter. Well, the first tabernacle was still standing. I think the ESV translators are trying to emphasize that division between the old, uh, the holy place and the most holy place that has been obliterated. But as long as the tabernacle and the entire tabernacle system was still standing, or in other words, in other words, the, the old covenant was in effect, that way had not been opened. But Kids, you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? In the Gospels, it says when he breathed his last, something really amazing happened at the temple. That veil, that heavy, heavy curtain that separated the old, or the, the outer, uh, the holy place from the most holy place, the, the, the inner tabernacle from the holy of holies, that veil was torn from top to bottom. That's not something any man could have done. They couldn't get that high. But God tore that veil open because the Son, the Lord Jesus, had entered into the Holy of Holies with his own shed blood, and he had purchased our redemption. And that, that veil that says, stay away, is now cast open for every child of God to enter with boldness and confidence as a throne of grace. Jesus passed through the heavens. He didn't go into the Holy of Holies, do his ministry, and then come back out. He passed through the heavens he, with a very, his own shed blood, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, the throne of grace, interceding for us day after day after day. Now, verse 9 speaks of this present age, uh, the, the age of the new covenant. That's now. That present age has now come. The old uh, order of things is obsolete. It's ready to pass away. It's no longer in effect. All that was symbolic in the old covenant is no longer relevant to the worship of God's people because it's inadequate to cleanse sins. It's inadequate to cleanse the consciences of the people of God. It's, it's, it's wonderfully there to point us forward to who Jesus is and to help us understand more, to prepare the hearts and minds of the people of God, say, oh, this is how redemption is accomplished. But it is not sufficient to accomplish that redemption. redemption. And in verse 10, I want you to notice that it says that these, these items, these, uh, let me start reading verse 9 and 10. Um, Speaking of the the first section, it's symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. These are external. They are physical in nature. They're food and drink and washings that cannot bring about the spiritual transformation that our souls desperately need. And from the very outset, it wasn't revealed this, but it was in God's mind. And now we read that these were all intended to be temporary until, as we read in verse 10, the time of reformation. So the new covenant represents for us a reformation. The word reformation here, and it's the only place it appears in the New Testament, it is, the, the, the original word is de-orthosis. 
You know what an orthopedist is? When you break a bone or you get a bone out of joint, he sets it back where it belongs. He sets what is out of place, he sets it right. Well, that's what this reformation is, taking what is out of place and setting it right. NIV calls it the time of the new order, but when things are set in place. Now, in the Protestant Reformation we talked about earlier, things were out of order because of the corruption in the Roman Catholic Church and throughout much of the Roman Catholic priesthood. The problem in the Old Covenant was not corruption in the priesthood. It was the inadequacy and the insufficiency of the covenant established or the covenant that established that priesthood. So there was a need for a reformation to set things right. And so we have this time of reformation that brings about true cleansing, true forgiveness, true redemption accomplished by the shed blood of our Lord Jesus. So let's spend a few more moments and look at verses 11 to 15, this reformation that brings about redemption. Now, again, the emphasis in the first 10 verses was that these, this, this structure, these items, this, this, these rituals were all earthly. They were all physical. They were temporal. They didn't go below the surface. Verse 11 refers to a greater and more perfect tent, one that was not made with hands. The nature of the old covenant is it's physical. It's of this creation, whereas the nature of the new covenant is that it is spiritual. It's not earthly, it's heavenly, and it's of the new creation. However ornate or opulent or, or, or valuable or precious those old covenant tabernacle uh, furnishings were and the, 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 the tent itself, all of the linens and everything that, that decorated it, however ornate all of that might have been, it was still a tent made by human hands. And please hear me. Young people, hear this. Hear this. The very best this world has to offer, the best this world has to offer, pales in significance with the glory of the new creation, pales in significance with the glory of heaven. You know, we walk through the Schoenbrunn Palace and we're going, that's really amazing. It could steal your heart away looking at the treasures of men. We want our hearts to be secured by that which really satisfies our hearts, and that's only God and the glory of our Lord. Everything All the glory and wonder and beauty this world has to offer is simply a dim shadow of the glory to be revealed to us in heaven. But we see here in this this reformation of the new covenant that our Lord is that greater and more perfect high priest. He is referred to as Christ. Look at verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things. Why Christ and not when the Lord Jesus? Well, I think it's because the whole focus is on Messiah. Psalm 110, we read in our call to worship, this king who is now also a priest according to Melchizedek, this messianic prophecy. And Jesus is described as a priest of the good things that have come. What good things are we talking about here? What good things have come. Hebrews doesn't really tell us. Now, we see in the promise of the, old, of the new covenant wonderful promises, and that, that certainly would be embraced in that. But I think if you were to look in Ephesians 1, and we're not, we don't need to turn there, but 
we read Paul writing, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. And then he goes through a catalog of these spiritual blessings that we've received in Christ. He has chosen us in Christ from the foundation of the world to be blameless before him. He predestined us to be adopted as his own sons and daughters. In love, he predestined us. He set his love upon us and marked us out as his. He lavished us with his grace, his saving grace. He's given us redemption through his own, the blood of his own son, the Lord Jesus, our great high priest. That involves the forgiveness of our sins and the cleansing of our consciences. And it's a completed once and for all transaction. He's revealed to us the mystery of his will. In that context, he's talking about uniting all peoples, people from every tribe and language and people and nation into one people, the people of God, the church. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our heavenly inheritance. And all of this he's done to the praise of the glory, to the glory of his grace. And so the Lord Jesus is the high priest of all of these good things that have come to us through the new covenant. Verse 11 tells us that he's passed through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. However ornate or lavish that tabernacle might have been, it was still made by hands. When we look in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision of the Lord high and lifted up, And angels are covering their faces and their feet, and they're flying, these six-winged angels, crying out the glory of God. And it tells us that the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the train of a king's robe indicated the greatness of his power, majesty, or glory. The longer the train, the more glorious that king was said to be. Well, the train of his robe absolutely filled the whole temple. God's glory is everywhere. It fills it all. And that's infinitely greater and more beautiful and more, can we even say ornate, than all the gold and silver and platinum and everything else that you would find in the treasures of this world. See, so pass through this greater, this more perfect tent, entering the true holy places once and for all, not simply day after day. And he secured for us an eternal redemption, not with the ineffective blood of bulls and goats or rams, Again, those physical elements that have no moral or eternal significance. But the Lord Jesus, who is God, who took onto himself human flesh. And he fully obeyed the law in all of its particular details so that he might achieve a perfect human righteousness. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Disciplines of Grace, that we're going through in Sunday school, said that may be the greatest miracle that Jesus performed is just simply achieving perfect righteousness in this world. But here we have the priests of this old covenant. They're offering the blood of bulls and goats. Cost them nothing. Didn't cost them a thing. Somebody else brings the bull, the goat. They go, okay, yeah, sure, bring it. Jesus left the glory of heaven as the creator. He made himself part of the creation. As the lawgiver, he subjected himself to all of the requirements of the law. 
And as the holy judge, he submitted himself to the condemnation that you and I deserve for breaking that law. And he went to the cross and he offered not the blood of some other sacrifice, but he offered himself. It cost him everything. What a high priest we have. Hallelujah. What a savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with us till the end. Romans 5, Paul writes that even while we were yet uh, in our weakness, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he goes on, he says, very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, but for a good man, someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, neither righteous nor good, Christ died for us. His death was not to convince the Father to love us. His death was an expression of the greatness of the Father's love for us. So he shed his blood. And that points to an even greater reality that the spotless Lamb of God becomes sin for us in our place. And uh, he becomes sin for us and we become the righteousness of God in him. I hope you have committed 2 Corinthians 5.21 to memory by now because I quote it all the time. It's my favorite Uh, summary of the gospel. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That glorious transaction of the gospel. Therefore, Jesus' priestly ministry is infinitely greater than the priestly ministry of those Levitical priests. He serves in a better tabernacle, a better holy place, a better altar, a better incense. He offered a better sacrifice at the greatest possible personal cost. Therefore, he is the mediator of a better covenant, of a new covenant. These rituals of the old covenant, they, they address the purification of the flesh. Look at verses 13 and 14. At the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Well, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's this comparison, this contrast between the old covenant and the new. The offering of bulls and goats and the offering of the Lord Jesus himself and these, these, this blood of, of, of bulls and goats was, was taken into the, the Holy of Holies and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat. The ashes of that heifer were sprinkled on those who were seeking forgiveness from God and the effect of that was merely outward purification. Jesus was constantly dealing with the religious leaders of his day who were consumed with outward ritual cleanliness and uncleanness. And he was interested in the heart. He was coming to do a a, a work much deeper than they could imagine. So the sacrifices of the old covenant only deal with that external uncleanness. They have nothing to do with the purification of the heart and of the conscience. But Christ, the Messiah, was a sacrifice who had no blemish. He was a perfect and spotless lamb. Those bulls and goats and rams and lambs, they might be free from any kind of physical blemish, but they had no moral righteousness about them. There was no virtue in them that could take sin upon themselves and that could then transfer righteousness to those whom they were given as a substitute. It was all pointing 
to Jesus, who was holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. He offered himself, it says here, to God through the eternal spirit. There's a Trinitarian emphasis here, isn't there? Here we have God the Son, the Lord Jesus, offering himself through the eternal spirit to God the Father. All three persons of the Trinity we find described here as being involved in our redemption. And the effect of this sacrifice was, it it delves much deeper below the surface. He, first of all, purifies our consciences from dead works. Remember, Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Turning to your own way is a dead work because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That word dead works literally means the works of death. And it could, be, it could mean works characterized by death, works that spring from a dead person. It can also mean works that lead to death. And I think it's all of those things. And he purifies us from all of that because those sinful works, those natural works inevitably going our own way inevitably lead to death. But the second effect, not only purifying us from, from dead works, but it also moves us to serve the living God. You might see that contrast, dead works, living God. We find contrast throughout the book of Hebrews. But the result of this new heart is a cleansed conscience and a renewed will that wants to serve God, not simply serving yourself, doing his will because your heart has been inclined to please him. And finally, the result of this new covenant, priesthood in the Lord Jesus, he's the mediator of a new covenant we read in verse 15. He's our great high priest. He's seated on the throne of grace. He daily intercedes for us, and all who are called receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Everyone he calls to himself gets everything Jesus purchased in the cross, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of that inheritance. His ongoing ministry, interceding for us, guarantees it. The ongoing indwelling of the Spirit, who also intercedes for us, guarantees it. And we read finally that His death redeems us from those transgressions committed under the old covenant. What the the law, the old covenant law was wholly insufficient to accomplish, Jesus has accomplished through his own shed blood on the cross. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to continue through the rest of the chapter, and we're going to look further into what he says about the death of Christ and how that secures for us the promises of the old covenant. But I want to turn now, and I want us to focus our attention on the Lord's table for just a few moments. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 2, if you will. Luke chapter 2 is the account of the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And I'll read to you from verses 14 to 20. I said Luke 2. It's not Luke 2. <laughs> it is Luke 22, I believe. Starting at 14. Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and his apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What is the Passover? It is the old covenant meal. All right? If 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again or until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God, until the new covenant's been established. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant, the Passover meal, was offered to every member of the old covenant. It was a physical covenant. So every physical member of Israel was part of that. And even the young children, as soon as they could chew and swallow, partook of the old covenant meal, the Passover. It had important spiritual symbolism because it pointed forward to the death of Jesus Christ and to the redemption of our sins purchased by his death. But the new covenant meal, which sits before us here, is given to every member of the new covenant, everyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ. And it emphasizes the spiritual nature of the new covenant, it points backward to the, to the death of Christ, to the redemption of our sins, and forward to all that has been secured for us in his redemption, in his sacrifice. And every member of the new covenant is invited to participate. Notice how Jesus describes it. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The bread and the cup of the supper are a dramatic reenactment of Jesus' death, of his sacrifice, willingly laying down his life for us. It's a reminder, it's a proclamation that his body was pierced, that his blood was shed. And it's a celebration. Don't miss this. It's a celebration of his grace that was given to us at the cross. It's a reminder of that internal inheritance, everything that we have received in the new covenant. So this evening, as you prepare your heart for this new covenant meal, the Lord's table, I want to encourage you to make two examinations. First of all, Paul tells us to examine ourselves. Be sure you're eating and drinking in a worthy manner. That means... You're trusting in Christ alone, not your own righteousness, to make you right before God. Jesus paid it all. You're trusting in his redemption. And it means that you're following him in obedience, which begins in baptism and membership in his church, but seeking to obey him, bringing forth good works that are fruits of righteousness. If you're not a member of this particular church, that's okay. Uh, we, we would invite you to participate if you're seeking to walk before the Lord faithfully in obedience. But it also means making sure you're repenting of any sin that you know of. We don't want to take this table in a presumptuous and unworthy manner. We don't want to be careless about sin or careless about obedience. Verses eight, uh, excuse me, verses yeah, 18 and 19 in this very chapter of, of 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of factions and divisions that ought not to be there as Paul leads into his discussion of the Lord's table. So we want to make sure that we are seeking to live and walk in a worthy manner. Now, as soon as you examine your heart, something's going to happen. You're going to remember sins. And that's where I want you to take, I want to urge you to go and look, secondly, at the blood and the body of our Savior. You can, you can hold up the bread and hold up the cup and look at those, but I really want you to look beyond that. And I want you to look with the eye of faith at the Lord Jesus, 
Meditate on his glory that's revealed to us in the gospel. His body pierced for you. His blood shed for you. What did it cost our Savior? How much love must he have for you to make you his child, bought with his own precious blood? Think about the greatness of God's love. The whole manner of love is just that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. That he would manifest that love by sending his son to die when we deserve the opposite. So meditate on those things. Meditate on the blessings of the new covenant, that, that we are given a new heart. A heart. The heart of stone is taken away, and a heart of flesh. The law of God is placed on our hearts, and we're inclined to want to live it, to obey it. We have a new relationship that he's our God and we're his people. We have a genuine knowledge of him. And then it says he'll deal with us in mercy. He will remember our sins no more. So as you examine your heart, examine Christ. And think of all those things he secured for you with his own blood. And as I said a moment ago, as you examine yourself, you're going to remember some sins. And I want you to remember that God doesn't remember those sins. It's not that God has divine amnesia. It's that he deals with us in the righteousness of Christ, not our ongoing sinfulness. There's an assurance that God is for you. Now we need to confess. We need to repent. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But we deal with a gracious God. We're approaching a merciful God. And this table is a celebration of the richness and fullness of his grace. Let me ask the men who are going to serve to come forward at this time.